0: Welcome, everybody, back to L.A. Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott, along with my co-host in crime and cute observation of human behavior, Dr. Shiloh. Welcome back, Dr. Shiloh.
1: Hi. 102 episodes in, we still are awkward as hell with introducing each other.
0: <laughs> yep, absolutely. Not going to change. Doesn't get any
1: better, guys. I'm That's sorry. It. This
0: is it. This is it. <laughs>
1: Hey, happy hey, to be it, here.
0: How's it going? Happy, what is it, July 20th weekend, weekish. ish?
1: Yes, it is. It's right in, we're doing this nice and early because it's mega hot in our part of the world. So getting a little recording done in the morning feels yeah. good.
0: Well, think of it this way it's the coldest it's probably ever going to be moving forward. In oh, July. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <True.
1: laughs> Yeah. Gosh, do we have any housekeeping today? I don't
0: think so. I don't think so. Things are going really well. We are trundling along in our weekly production of content. Some of the episodes are shorter and tighter. This is one of the ones that's going to go back to our OG style. It's a longer, more intense one, but I think it's completely appropriate for what's going on in the world right now.
1: For sure. And I swear to everyone, I thought of this episode prior to any of the Supreme Court shenanigans I, that I'm, are
0: going on. <laughs> I'm right there backing you up. We talked about this has been on that and on, on our drive list for yeah. a long time. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well. But first, it, well, what? <laughs> because there's
0: one story, the story that we wrapped this whole thing up with. Oh,
1: my God. I have yeah. been
0: telling you about like for years to the point where are like, I don't I cannot talk about this. Please don't yeah, tell me about this again.
1: I want it to be a surprise. So, yeah. So but first, if you haven't listened to last week's vintage crime episode, we talked talked about the oldest unsolved murder in Pasadena, California, the Sphinx murder or otherwise known as the Don Juan dentist murder. We retraced the dentist's steps on his last night alive and provided you with a number of leads and theories, including a guest appearance by retired LAPD homicide detective Steve Hodell, who thinks there may be a link between his father and the Sphinx murder. So it was a cool one.
0: And if by any chance you don't know who his father is, his father was George Hodell, who said... Yes. Steve strongly believes, and there's a lot of evidence pointing to George Hodel's involvement in the Black Dahlia murders, as well as some other crimes. All right, let's get into today's episode. We have done killer nurses, killer athletes, criminal counselors, and cannibal cops. So here we are, 102 episodes in, it is time to talk about bad judges
1: it sure is. Did you know that I used to want to be a judge? No. You're springing this
0: on me after a, <laughs> over a decade of friendship. You're springing something new on me.
1: I know. I, I think in high school... They had us fill out like these tests that say what, you know, we would be good at and what that kind of correlates to as far as careers. And judge did come up for me and I was like, oh, interesting. And then my dad as a LA County Sheriff's deputy worked in court services for a number of years as a supervisor. And so I would go to work with him every once in a while. And basically he was just the guy in charge of all the deputies that worked at the court. Right. So he wasn't standing in a courtroom as a bailiff or anything, but he would allow me when And he was busy or had meetings or something to go sit in courtrooms. So as a teenager, I would go sit there. And I was like, the judge is the most powerful person in this room. That seems like a pretty cool job. Yeah. And I really was interested in it for a while. And then, you know, my little teenage brain, I found out, oh, you have to be an attorney first. (laughs) I do not want to go to legal school. Legal school, legal school.
0: Law school. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like a good reason you didn't go to, <laughs> don't yeah. go to legal school. No, you yeah. don't.
1: But I hated when we had to take, as part of my forensic psychology program, we had to take a legal research class. Loved my professor, adored him. We're still friends on Facebook to this day. Could not stand that class. I was like, I certainly made the right choice to not go to law school.
0: Yeah, I felt the same way that like I one of my professors that was the family evaluator specialist took me aside. And after I had turned in my final project and he said, you you get this. You'd be great for this, and I'm like, oh, I don't, no, 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 I don't want to do yeah. this at all. I'll work yeah. in forensics, but uh, warring parents over kids with kids as pawns—I absolutely mm, have no yeah. desire to do that. I will say I've had a wide range of experiences with judges. Like when I have had to testify, I've worked with really good judges who, if they didn't understand something I was talking about, would just be completely fine with, wait, can, I need more information on that, or you need oh, to great. you need to explain that, which is great. And And then because I'm a marriage and family therapist as well as a psychologist, the chances of me being on a jury are very low. Attorneys don't want us on journeys because we think in a different manner, you know, that would Mm -hmm. probably delay the process. And I really wanted to because the judge that spoke about our civic duty was so eloquent and such a wise man. I was like, "Holy shit, sign me up. I will I will be on the jury for this." And then on the other side of it, a former colleague of mine who is a former psychologist who is incarcerated now in
1: mm.
0: State of California Department of Corrections. I sat in on his hearing and that judge, I still to this day am just slack-jawed at how badly that judge handled the hearings.
1: Wow. In what way?
0: Allowing testimony and not challenging testimony and not challenging the incompetence of both the district attorney and the defense attorneys. Like there was Got incompetence it. all the way across the board. And I mean, it it was, I was sitting with my friend's family members and just thinking this isn't happening. This is, this cannot be happening. And it did. And a person is, is incarcerated. And to this day, I still think that he was incorrectly adjudicated, but you know, well, those are two
1: good examples of just like kind of the ideal and what you expect, you know, like you use the words wise and, you know, someone who can really make you feel like you're there for a purpose if you're a potential jury member, that it's important is you know, our duty as citizens. And then the flip side of someone just like letting anything kind of go in the courtroom to the point where, you know, someone could be locked up that doesn't deserve to be or what have you, or yeah. just not getting a fair trial, however that can shake out.
0: Right. What I've experienced is that we have this ongoing sort of trope here in the U.S. about how annoying it is to be on a jury when mm-hmm. it really is like you get all the benefits of this republic democracy so you should be paying for it. And the way you pay for it is by your taxes. And there, you know, there's certainly a lot of debate about taxes from state to state, but it's your civic duty and your social responsibility to make sure that the legal system works in the way that it's supposed to work.
1: Yeah. And that we have eyes on as just regular people. And the way to do that is
0: absolutely
1: actually pretty powerful as a juror. So, all right. Well, with that, let's, let's back way up right. and l- we're going to lay a lot of foundation here, a, lot. a little bit of history for you guys. Oh, trigger w- warnings,
0: trigger warning. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So today folks, we are going to be covering themes that include suicide, child abuse, and some sexual themes. Some of it's lighter than others clearly, but you know, we want to give you a heads up. Yep,
1: for sure. So when we look at law. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the United States today, all different levels. But we have what we refer to as the rule of law in this country. And it's a principle under which all persons, institutions, and entities are accountable to laws that are publicly promoted, equally enforced, independently adjudicated, and consistent with international human rights principles. Interesting stuff. (laughs) Especially just, again, like what's going on right now. So either from eighth grade U.S. history or civics class, or if you are one of the millions of people who've seen Hamilton, you'll remember that Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay wrote a number of essays that we now call the Federalist Papers that basically was in endorsement of the U.S. Constitution at the time. And specifically in the Federalist Paper number 78, it states that federal courts were, quote, designed to be an intermediate body between the people and their legislature. And so in order to ensure that most people's representatives acted only within the authority given to Congress under the Constitution, the Constitution is the fundamental law of the nation. So this is codified as the Constitution is the core values of people. And courts have the responsibility to interpret the Constitution's meaning as well as the meaning of any laws that are passed by Congress, obviously federally. Again, the Federalist Paper number 78 states that if any law is passed by Congress and it conflicts with the Constitution, that the Constitution ought to be preferred to the statute. So in Article 3 of the Constitution, which we're going to reference a couple of times today, it says that every person accused of wrongdoing has the right to a fair trial before a competent judge and jury of one's peers. But we know that the courts are just not entities. They're not these nebulous fact-finding machines. They're made up of individual people, judges, magistrates. There's different names for them across the country. And the founders knew that judges who apply the law freely and fairly are essential to this rule of law that I talked about at the top. The Constitution also guarantees our rights on paper, but of course, we need independent courts. And the judges who sit on those courts to protect those rights. And our federal judges are supposed to be protected from the influence of other branches, as well as shifting popular opinion. And that's why they have so much power, but also there needs to be checks and balances there to make sure that they are doing things for the right reasons and upholding what we call judicial independence. So that allows them to make decisions based on what's right under the law without facing political or personal consequences for their decisions. Like, you know, they're not making decisions because they're afraid they're going to get fired or that they're not going to get reelected or that their salary is going to be reduced, something like that. That's why we have judicial independence in place.
0: Well, and you would hope that our elected officials will do the same thing, that they will make... decisions based on what is the best for their constituents rather than what's going to get me elected. And unfortunately, that is one of the criticisms of our system here in the U.S. Right. Currently is that by the moment you're elected, you start fundraising for your next election. So there's just a real disparity in in the efforts, but that's going down another rabbit hole. So look, the big question for me and all of this research and everything that's been going on for the last several months, and particularly in regard to our last two appointed Supreme Court judges, I was like, what are the actual requirements? And shouldn't SCOTUS or regional judges at least have tried cases before? Because I just always thought that, of course, you're not going to be a judge unless you've been a trial attorney before. And of course, we are very lucky because we have our a lawyer friend, Michelle, which is the way yep. I re- always refer to our lawyer friend, Michelle, <laughs> because our other two lawyer friends are busy raising families. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know, I know. But I, I love having experts at our disposal. Oh, yeah. It's the best.
0: Oh, yeah. So look, what we did was is we reached out to Michelle and just said, you know, can you give us some perspective on this? from being an attorney. And she, of course, gave us back some real food for thought. And to be honest, folks, as you're listening to this, I'm going to be repeating direct quotes from Michelle and we're going to be having deeper conversations amongst ourselves about this. These are things that I'm not comfortable with. It's one of the reasons I don't become an attorney because I don't, you know, I work with behavior and assessing behavior and prognosticating about behavior and helping guide people towards health and guiding people away from areas of harm. That is a very different paradigm and dynamic from law. And Mm -hmm. so I have to sit with my own discomfort about some of the answers we got back. So just wanted to frame it like that way. So generally speaking, not every attorney has to be a trial attorney. That was surprising to me. And then she says, looking at prosecution and defense, you'll find that a lot more prosecutors and defense attorneys will be or have the opportunity to do trials just given the nature of the criminal justice system. Even then, it doesn't mean that every defense attorney or prosecutor will be a trial attorney. For example, there are attorneys on both sides of the criminal system that strictly do appellate work, and appellate attorneys really study the law, and their job is to respond to the defendant briefs and argue to the appellate judges that the prosecution lawfully convicted a defendant without violating state law or the constitution so yeah
1: so i i kind of think of this as like okay not every psychologist is going to treat patients you know you're gonna have psychologists doing research and just purely academic things like that you know it's we have in our mind like what a psychologist or what an attorney is and it's usually doing that work on that stage
0: yeah from from that from our limited perspective right so that's completely on brand. So Michelle goes on to say that appellate attorneys will go into a courtroom, but they're usually going to the state appellate division or the court of appeals. And then that's a very different arena than a trial court. But those are attorneys that really do know the law. And she was emphasizing that these are the ones that are that combination of expert academic understanding of what the law is. So you can have appellate attorneys for either the prosecution or the defense side who have never done a trial, but have an incredible knowledge and grasp of law, and they can eventually become judges. So she says oversimplified version. Yes, you can have judges that are elected or appointed to the bench from your county court all the way up to the Supreme Court that have never tried a case or done a trial. I'm having a strong reaction to that. But like, I, yeah, I guess it's maybe it's built on my own expectations that someone holding that high of a position is going to have done what I expect. But then again, I have a limited perspective, right?
1: Yeah, I think this is totally challenging that I've thought that as well. But I think it, it makes a lot of sense. I want someone on that bench who's an expert in law and knows the matters inside and out, I really guess that I don't care too much if they've defended or prosecuted or, you know, sort of been that in that role as an attorney, as long as they know what the fuck they're talking about. Okay, on the
0: bench. <laughs> I will consider me, you know, continuing to be educated. So what is looked at is their prior decisions and what those prior decisions have been. What is their record in terms of cases that they've heard? What are those decisions? What were those decisions that they came into the lower courts with when they first started up until the point that they were appointed to a position like the Supreme Court? So this is going to give you a better idea of the type of person or the type of judge that you're dealing with. For example, if you have a lower court judge who is making decisions on trials that keep getting overturned, that's an issue that is a huge red flag. And just another, thing to keep in mind that judges have very high regard in the legal community and the community at large, but judges are also human beings, which means they are fallible or may not be the best person for the job. Judges have to uphold the same ethical standards that all the rest of us attorneys have to do as well.
1: Well that's the reason we pick sort of the people or the professions that we talk about when we do these episodes because we're always talking about people who are either high profile or high regard right. nurses, counselors, you know, things of that nature because we put them on this pedestal for all these reasons. Of course, they they hold very important responsibilities. They make or break people's lives either, you know, medically by saving people's lives or taking their lives away or people's rights. So, I think this you little snippet from Michelle just encapsulates why we even talk about these folks in our episodes.
0: Right, right. So in the last few points that she provides us, she says that it is not the Supreme Court's job to make legislation. It's the Supreme Court's job to interpret the laws that are made by lower court decisions that stem from them and then decide and determine if those decisions are constitutional. So the effect of that is that case law is made that has to be followed by every state in the United States. But every state has the ability to go beyond the bar that the Supreme Court sets, but can never go below it. So think of right to counsel as an example. And then she goes on to say, with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, The court's job was to interpret, to determine if what was put before them was constitutional. And there are times, like in this case, where after the effect of the decision, it challenges our collective morality and threatens or appears to threaten our rights and freedoms. She goes on to say, I can't tell you exactly what the justices were thinking because I haven't read the entire decision yet. So now... Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh commentary on that, I really respect that. I really respect that she's stating, I can't tell you what the justices were thinking because I haven't read the entire decision yet. So what she's telling us there is she may very well have a chance or an opportunity to read it and go, yeah, this this is clearly biased or influenced by their backgrounds from the Federalist Society or something, or she might say something completely different. Right. And final thought, just because a case is overturned or a law is found to be unconstitutional doesn't necessarily mean that the judges making that decision are also happy with the outcome. There can exist a situation where the justices are purely doing their job and had to overturn the decision because it was legally correct to do so, but then they could be just as upset about that decision as all of us. Mm-hmm. So I I here's and here's where I have to sit in the distress tolerance because my view is that that did not happen. In in, the, in Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is based on what I'm seeing in news and media, which is when they all four were affirmed, they clearly stated that it was set law. So here I am. Yeah. I'm, sitting, I'm sitting in some real discomfort as I'm being educated on the process. What do you think? How do you feel about this?
1: Well, I think what you just said, we will come back to that when we talk about how judges can lose their seats. But... <laughs> Gosh, I still sometimes I think I have such a Pollyanna ish view in that I think the Supreme Court, these are smart, smart people like they really, really know the law inside and out, or at least I want to feel that way right? That they are perhaps interpreting the law so well that they are making this determination, despite the fact that, you know, all the implications that something like Roe versus Wade has or how I feel personally about it. I want to believe that, but, (laughs) you know, you start looking at people as people and we can go back and forth and look at previous statements they've made and how does that sit with all of this? And it's tough. It can't be all or nothing. You know, I, not any one of us us can just have this view of like, oh, well, it's a Supreme Court. So what they says goes, or it's the best, or it's correct, or that's just too black and white. Like there's got to be some other minutia in between there. So I I, I choose just to still listen to experts like our friend Michelle to give some context around this. Um, that's our lawyer then, friend Michelle. Yeah. Yeah. And then just, thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Use the correct term for her, our lawyer, term, sorry, our lawyer friend Michelle.
1: But I don't know. It's very, very complicated it and it's very emotional. So,
0: it, I, And I'm I'm owning that. I'm very emotional about this. But I'm very concrete that I believe not only women, I think everyone should have bodily autonomy. Like that is ultimately to me the ultimate freedom. And this is supposed to be a country that respects that. So yeah, I have a lot of emotions about it. But you drilled down into who makes the laws and the different types of lawmakers. Can you give us that?
1: Yeah, just because in what you were reading that our lawyer friend Michelle gave us, I think a lot of times people think that judges are sort of making laws and they're not. But I just want to talk about where those come from really quickly. So if we're looking nationally, federally, as we call it here, our Congress makes or changes our laws. And Congress is both the House of Representatives and the Senate together, or as we also term it, the legislative branch of our government. And then Supreme Court judges... Our Supreme Court of the United States are appointed by the president and they are confirmed by the Senate. So that's how they even get there in the first place. There are nine justices who sit on the court. They serve for life or until they want to retire and they cannot have their salaries reduced. So, again, that judicial independence we're talking about is in place for them. And again, referencing Article 3 of the Constitution, it tells us that judges shall hold their offices during good behavior. So judges, yes, (laughs) judges have life terms because once appointed, they keep their jobs until they choose to quit as long as they have this quote unquote good behavior. And to ensure good behavior, as I said before, there are some checks and balances on judicial power built into the Constitution. And that check for Supreme Court justices is impeachment, which we will talk about more thoroughly when we get to the bad behavior of judges. (laughs) Other types of federal judges in our country, aside from the Supreme Court of the United States, they are serving in one of the 13 U.S. Court of Appeals. They also serve as one of the 94 U.S. District Courts, and they also serve as judges in the Court of International Trade. There are also other federal judges who serve under a different article in the Constitution, Article 1, and those. are judges who serve in courts like the United States Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, United States Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, United States Tax Court, Federal Claims Court, United States Bankruptcy Courts. There's a lot of different, including the U.S. territorial courts in the Northern Mariana Islands, Guam, and the Virgin Islands. So we're very complicated here, but that's just sort of federally where you will see judges. Federal judges are also nominated by the president in... So the nominee basically fills out a questionnaire that gets reviewed by the Senate Judiciary Committee. And then that committee ends up holding a hearing with the nominee, questioning them about things like their judicial philosophies, perhaps their past rulings and opinions, just to get to know them and how they conduct their job better. And then after the hearing, the Senate Judiciary Committee will vote to approve or return the nominee. And if the nominee is approved, then that gets voted on by the full Senate and they are then can be appointed. So as a federal judge. So that's we have federal, but then we have seems like a lot of different types of judges when we take states and counties into consideration.
0: There are so many different types of law and courts that here Types of cases that when you get down to the local level, we can really only cover some of the basics here. Each state has a state Supreme Court and a state Court of Appeals. I think Texas and Oklahoma are the only two states that have separate Supreme Courts, one for criminal and one for civil. And the governor appoints those Supreme Court judges. So if we use California as an example, we have two types of courts, the trial courts or what we also call superior courts here in California and the appellate courts, which we referred to prior. The trial courts handle all the civil cases, all criminal cases, small claims cases, and the appeals of infractions like traffic court or appeals of civil cases that involve $25,000 or less. Superior court judges serve six-year terms and are elected by county voters on a nonpartisan ballot during a general election during even numbered years. Vacancies occurring during those terms due to retirements, deaths, or other departures are filled through appointment by the governor. I think this is a fascinating process too, and I really like it because most of the my experiences here in California with judges have been generally pretty positive, and mm-hmm. I don't know what their political affiliation is, which is pretty great. Yeah, true. Like Because we we want them to be upholding the law, not biased by their political beliefs. So that's really cool about our election system here. And a superior court judge must have been an attorney admitted to practice law in California or served as a judge in California for at least 10 years immediately preceding election or appointment. So I think what we're talking about here is that California has a pretty high standard compared to some other states. And that's another controversy that's kind of gossipy and I'm not going to get into it, uh-huh. but but most people out there are going to know what I'm talking about.
1: Oh, Yes, definitely, and even like that's a high bar for any like federally, and we're going to talk about and it should <laughs> the be Supreme Court judge right. in a second that didn't have that much experience. So yeah, I I think that's great. Good yay, California, good job. Okay, ready to talk about judges from a psychological perspective? Yes, shifting. <laughs> Let's dig in a little bit now that you got your uh, civics lesson down. So just first off, I want to have a little bit of a conversation here about what the judge is presiding over and how that could influence them as a person. We're going to to take an empathetic standpoint here and say, like, what's going on in a courtroom and how does that relate to how we think judges should act and go about their duties? I mean, we're talking a courtroom is a place of high emotion from grief, loss, trauma anger. You're hearing heartbreaking stories. You're seeing horrific evidence, especially if you're a a criminal judge, of course. Um, The exposure to trauma. I mean, we talk about vicarious trauma with a lot of criminal justice workers. I remember specifically, and we might've talked about this in our internet sexual offense series that we did, but when we talked about people involved in the criminal justice system when there is a sexual crime, including judges, like all the different ways that impacts you vicariously. And I remember there was a study that looked at how judges were impacted specifically and it was very similar to the psychologists and the attorneys and the detectives you know where it was impacting their personal lives it was impacting their ability to emotionally regulate all that stuff so that that's always been in the back of my head as to just judges being another cog in this giant machine of criminal justice that gets impacted by these things that we hear and see over and over again. So I just think it's really interesting to look at all that they have to sort of take on, like a lot of us, and still keep a a cool head and do their job in the courtroom. But if we back up for a second to the stressful journey that it takes to become a judge, there was a paper put out by the U.S. Department of Justice in the 1980s that I found that acknowledged how professionals, and they specifically stated, for instance, like judges and doctors, suffer from psychological disabilities because of two major things going on for them. The first is that they typically initiate the pursuit of their professional careers with a high degree of achievement and motivation. And their early adult lives are marked by the presence of an extended apprenticeship period during which their skills incubate before they're put to use and become fully accredited. So to me, this is like any journey of sort of, you know, higher education, doctoral level. Of course, we have here like medical doctors and all the schooling they go through. But also in that camp, I have attorneys and psychologists and um, other mental health professionals. So this really makes sense that by the time professionals who go through years of achieving And getting through, there's always like a next hoop, a next hoop of their professional careers. There's already a ton of stress and possible burnout that could lead to things like distress and mood disorders and substance abuse disorders. So I know you and I can't say that it was a totally easy journey, just grad school, internships, dissertations, postdoctoral work, you know, all of that. And it's like, you're freaking burnt out by the time you're like, okay, you're finally a psychologist. (laughs) It's like, gee, thanks. The real work starts now what? yeah
0: okay i wonder if i'll ever get that hair back that i just you know yeah. chunked out during that last year of internship no seriously
1: but what i liked was this this paper advocated for early and appropriate intervention which yeah i wish you know every professional who was stressed would have early and appropriate intervention i mean i just I think it's easier said than done also in kind of these careers with high achievers where stigma to asking for help or feeling like you're showing any sign of weakness is still really present. So I, I would hope that, you know, those resources are available to everyone, especially people in these areas, because we know the numbers with, you know, students in medical school and how the high rates of suicide are. And it's just yeah. all of these hard chargers and high achievers, you know, it there's a flip side to that for sure
0: there is and i think that there's also there's a flip side to it but there's also a parallel process that exists and that is that to borrow from spider-man that it was stolen from an earlier comic is with great power comes great responsibility yeah and you know when you were in that crucible you decide whether unconsciously or consciously whether or not this power is going to be wielded for the greater good or for your own personal satisfaction. And I don't think that that's a conscious decision. I think that it being an unconscious decision is how we get behavioral drift in a lot of careers that have power, whether it is people in our career as clinicians, we have a lot of clinicians that come into doing private practice because they want to feel superior. We've done studies on this. There are people that go into teaching elementary school because they want to be able to have power over kids. You know, it spans a lot of different careers. So I'm not sure always whether there's a conscious awareness of that. But I love this description that I found of what the job itself is. And I'm going to quote from our resources. The daily work of judging for its part is broad and varied. Judges interpret the law and what it requires exercise discretion, credit versions of reality, and accord defense to other institutional actors. These aspects of judging are widely studied. However, judges also interact with the public, lawyers, litigants, jurors, witnesses, clerks, court staff, and one another. They are colleagues, employees, employers, subordinates, and supervisors. Some are court managers, civic role models, and public intellectuals. Temperament is relevant to the full sweep of what judges do, including the understudied parts, like how they handle the job's inherent challenges and how they treat people along the way. I love this quote. Mm-hmm. I would love this writer we're going to talk about who wrote this in just a second and, and give some more from his study. I think it's really important to look at that because maybe other people like myself fall into this limited perspective, that they're less than human or more than human and that they're going to do the right thing when it's actually, like we said before, it's way more complex than that. Yeah. So what psychological traits or just traits in general do we expect our judges to have?
1: Mm, Good question.
0: Right. (laughs) Right.
1: I mean, you talked about temperament, but I think what comes to mind for me is integrity. I mean, above everything else, And with integrity, I, and maybe it's just because, you know, I've been, we did an episode on active bystandership and I've kind of been researching and studying that for work purposes lately. But with that, with integrity, I feel like comes a courageousness, a courage. I put that in there to be able to do what's right and have this sort of legal courage almost that you can stand alone and see all the parts and still make a choice that is going to perhaps make or break somebody that's in that courtroom with you yeah. or you know dictate case law down the road i just feel like that is so integral to what we're talking about
0: i love that i did not come up with that so i love that you pointed out because well no because <laughs> okay. that's okay no i mean i was just kind of thinking all about temperament but you just said something so perfect because what use is temperament if there's no integrity you know what? Oh, yeah. What matter, You can what is be it,
1: like holding it together on the holding outside. Holding it together and, and being, sh- being everybody's
0: side. best friend and being the ultimate quote unquote professional. But if you have no integrity, then you're yeah. just another psychopath. You. <laughs> you know, you're pulling
1: you. You people, that's all right? I mean,
0: like, that's what it comes <laughs> down to. It is interesting that this field has only recently begun to study the psychological dimensions and aspects of the job of being a judge. And the findings really were pretty surprising to me because up until now, research in this area has been experimental in nature with the understanding that the individual who's being considered for this position and who is holding the position is that their attributes as a human being are more significant and relevant than the judge's attributes as a lawyer or a judge. I mean, it makes sense but maybe I was distracted by what I was assumed the education experience level of the person being considered. I mean, I, mm-hmm. the way this is being broken down is very important for me to look at and, and help tolerate that dis- distress when I think completely yeah. unfair decisions are being, well, made.
1: I mean, education experience is still huge in my mind. <laughs> like yeah. That.
0: Oh, no, 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 Integrity not to here, minimize education
1: that. experience here. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about what is the best makeup, of those pursuing or holding these positions, going back to that quality, temperament is really extremely important.
1: Well, so maybe we should just define, like, what is just regular human temperament before we get to judges?
0: Perfect. So, okay, as psychologists, we understand that temperament is a relatively stable trait that levels individual differences in emotional habits that underlies the way in which different people react to and cope with similar situations. So okay. temperament is sort of this gyroscope of balance within a personality characteristic that allows people to be predictable and understandable within that mm-hmm. kind of framework of integrity, is, is the way I look at it.
1: Yeah. But it's it's a something that's relatively stable in a person like you their their temperament like we each know our spouses and what their temperaments are going to be like maybe in different situations or environments right but over and over again in those same situations environment we can pretty much say like what their temperament's going to be predictable
0: level of character so when like kind sure. of the opposite of be like hmm, well that's that's really out of yes. character for them to be acting that way you know how often exactly. do we say that
1: Right. Well, author Terry Maroney, who is the chair in law and professor of medicine, health, and society at Vanderbilt University, he works intimately with judicial groups in the United States and around the world, and a lot of his work supports judges in recognizing and responding to the human aspects of their work. But he wrote a really great piece about the topic of judicial temperament. And we thought it was really helpful in understanding the general expectations that we as citizens have of our appointed officials. He states early on that, quote, elusive as it is important, judicial temperament is notoriously hard to define.
0: Isn't that interesting?
1: You and I have sat here trying to define it, and now this expert's like, no. You guys can't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or he's okay. he's acknowledging that it's really difficult. Like, so no, we're, sure. we're talking about something that is really difficult. And that goes on to another important aspect that we'll pour in in a second. But he goes on to say judicial temperament, thus should be understood to refer to a deep-seated, relatively stable set of personal traits, separable from intellect, training, and ideology, that in dialectic with specific judicial environments and the predictable demands of judging, dry behaviors that affect how justice is delivered and perceived. So, I mean, we, we probably have mentioned DBT multiple times here, dialectical behavior therapy, which is a concept and training and treatment protocol developed by Marsha Linehan for people with personality disorders. But dialectical thinking is a really important concept that all of us can benefit from because dialectical thinking is the ability to see things from multiple perspectives. So a fundamental groundwork understanding of dialectical thinking is that everything is composed of opposites and contradictions, and Mm -hmm. that to understand things comprehensively we have to understand their opposite. So it's basically the absolute opposite of concrete thinking.
1: Right, right. Yeah, we want critical thinking. We don't want black and white thinking. It's we want a judge to be able to sit in a courtroom and say both this and this are existing at the same time. Yes, they can both be true. And it doesn't mean one has to block out the other. And I can sort of hold all that in my mind and consider all of that when making decisions on law. So Yeah, like you were saying earlier, you were sitting in your distress tolerance (laughs) of this information. That's exactly what we want judges to do is be able to consider that. The assumption is that judges will have courtesy, patience, and compassion combined with things like intellect, integrity, and adequate legal training based on what we as a population expect as necessary to be an interpreter of the law and working towards our best interests, but clearly it doesn't always go this way and we'll have some examples of that. But also judges are expected to have basic psychological stability with coherent strengths and weaknesses. Their core traits should focus on two integral factors, steady patterns of emotional experience and the ability to appropriately regulate emotionality, which I think that one's huge as well. And like you said, not just on the outside, but on the inside too, like really regulating.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I like the way this writer really drills down on that. I think that that's such an important concept. I mean, it certainly is, is integral to the work that we do, you know, providing services or interpreting the behaviors of others. What this paper goes on to say is that the best profiles for judges will reflect at least moderate if not high positive emotionality, and moderate to high levels of self-regulatory capacity. These traits support judges in meeting the position's responsibility with resilience and the expectation to maintain consistent displays of what you were talking about earlier, qualities of patience, compassion, respect, level-headedness, and of course, openness, which is should be like the baseline, I would think. The worst profiles will have high levels of negative emotionality and low levels of the capacity to self-regulate. So a combination of those qualities would lead judges to cope very poorly over time with displays of things like impatience, disrespect, disdain, volatility, and high levels of defensiveness. So while there's a lot of flexibility in this model, at baseline, the author hopes that there are going to be core elements of trait positivity moderate self-regulation and control or very high regulation of the extreme ends of that individual's negative emotionality. I love this.
1: Yeah. So basically, I want my judge like in between sessions and on breaks back in his chambers meditating to build his resilience. <laughs> I don't want him back there oh, yeah. hitting the bottle <laughs> as his coping mechanism before he gets back on the stand. Or a
0: couple of other things we're going to talk or about in a minute.
1: Or Oh, okay. A little foreshadowing there. Some other unnecessary coping skills going on in the courtroom, perhaps. <laughs> so the author also talks a great deal about the trait of kindness being integral to the makeup of a good judge. This was a little bit surprising, just like this nice fluffy term of kindness, but the way it was framed was really well stated. In his definition of kindness, he asserts that trait kindness is not about individual sporadic and specific acts, but an overall profound quote Constellation of positive attitudes, feelings, and behaviors towards others. I can't believe someone else used your word, constellation, Scott. My goodness.
0: I was so happy. That's why I knew I this, hope, this, this I hope author was my, my soulmate.
1: So that included things like compassion, empathy, pro social behavior, generosity, and altruism. Essentially, one who approaches life with a love for humanity, which is a very nice thing to think about. If your judge is up there on the bench, you want them to above all have that consideration for humanity. So keeping in mind that judges are expected to have all of these wonderful traits, even during stressful conditions there are some problematic traits too.
0: Exactly. So on the other end of the spectrum of problematic traits that a judge could have, or basically anybody could have, those would include dispositional anger or a consistent ongoing tendency to interpret hostile intent in the actions of others. So somebody that could be easily frustrated by a variety of general life challenges, maybe have an experience or a history of mood changes, and really problematic is someone that ruminates or focuses on their own experience of anger and their perceived grievances.
1: Mm. We talked a lot about grievances in the last episode.
0: Yes, it's very, yeah, in our last one about shooters, that's a big deal. Yeah. So individuals who are temperamentally hostile and argumentative will tend to be vigilant even to the extent of hypervigilant for the perception of their provocation from others. And they tend to initiate and sustain arguments and respond to what they've instigated in anger. So we're just basically saying that the worst qualities that you could probably have is to be somebody who has perceived grievances, anger management issues, and then instigatory and persecutory beliefs and actions.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's of bordering on, you know, having your own ideology and mind made up about, you know, sort of like the lens through which you're viewing the world. Absolutely. And each case that a judge has has to really stand on its own. So I also wanted to quickly mention that I looked at a really old study, it was from the 80s, but it was conducted to look at personality traits between male and female judges, and they really found no differences. So I love that. Yeah, not going to go into that a ton, but they were just kind of looking at it from this sort of biosocial perspective and didn't find huge differences. So, and for an interesting time, like the eighties and their perspective was looking at it from like more women entering the workforce and all of those. In
0: a way that's kind of progressive for that time, which, which should have been. So kind of jumping around now to the idea of what happens when somebody goes rogue or when, when a judge is perceived to not being able to do their job and how do we get rid of them? Well, you impeach them, which I've never really, I mean, impeachment is like this term it's thrown around all the time about you know, officials and elected officials and the president, yep. and the, but what does it mean? And we'll get into that in a little bit more, because sometimes it seems like that term just doesn't have any teeth, right? Mm-hmm, they impeached, them, but they didn't, they didn't do anything. They're still in the position. So, but this is, of course, is all stemming from talk right now due to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, because two Supreme Court justices in their confirmation hearings were asked to give their view. On the law protecting abortion rights and stated that they felt the issue had been settled as legal precedent. So now some people are calling for impeachment because they lied under oath in these hearings. At least that's the saying is like, you lied. Right. You were asked directly about this. Now you're lying because you're Signing on to this movement and Mm -hmm. it was under oath. So, what's that about? So, according to Article Three that you talked about at the top, the judges, both of the Supreme and Inferior Courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior.
1: There's that term again, like vague as fuck, but there it is.
0: How Well, so, yeah, who gets to say what good behavior is, especially exactly. as volatile as things are today in our speech. But, yeah, the Constitution lays out that the government officials can be impeached for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Right. So, the process of impeaching a Supreme Court judge is the same as impeaching a president. First, the House has to draft articles of impeachment. The House then needs only a majority to impeach Supreme Court justice. but. A two-thirds majority is required in the Senate to convict. Same process goes for any federal judge. And with respect to federal judges, since 1803, the House of Representatives has only impeached 15 judges, 15 since 1803. That was surprising mm-hmm. to me. And mm-hmm. only eight of these impeachments were followed by convictions in the Senate. And I think it was Justice Samuel Chase is the only Supreme Court justice in the House that ever been impeached. And he was acquitted from that impeachment by the Senate in 1805. So... Yep. There's supposed to be this thing that's in place to hold people accountable, and it's only used very little historically when we actually know there are a lot of cases out there. In fact, we had to choose three of the most egregious as examples, but there's a lot out there.
1: There is, and this is really where the start of the frustrating part is for me because it is super, super hard to get rid of judges. So for the state or the superior courts, for their judges, there's you know, if we don't want them back in their position, they're elected. So there's a possibility that they don't get reelected, right? So that is taken to the voters and they could lose their seat on the bench that way. State judges can also be impeached by the state legislatures. Judges usually have to be accused of very serious misdeeds to be impeached. Things like associating with organized crime figures, embezzlement, like major major money mismanagement or fraud and or using their powers in that sense. However, you cannot fire a judge without evidence of criminal activity, gross immorality or other egregious misconduct. So there also exists a process, which I feel like this this can make people feel a little bit more empowered, perhaps. But again, it doesn't really shake out too well in favor of those who feel that the judge is acting in an egregious way in the course of their job. But that process is called judicial review. And all citizens can file complaints against any state judge in the United States by going through the Judicial Conduct Commission, for that particular state that you're in. And the Judicial Conduct Commissions can impose a range of penalties, including legal orders to cease and desist a particular course of action, formal warnings, temporary suspensions, forced retirement from the bench, and removal from office. And judges are warned or sanctioned by the Judicial Conduct Commission more often than they are actually removed from office or forced into retirement. So there's a lot of finger wagging as to like, you did this wrong or don't do that again. But again, doesn't really result in a lot of movement or removal, but it's kind of hopeless, helpless feeling.
0: Well, it, 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 that, that's what I'm talking about where it feels like it doesn't have any teeth. It's like, yeah. so if these people have done things, I mean, you and I work in a milieu that, that we have a license, you know, if we were to do some of yes. these egregious, things, I mean, even if it's a misdemeanor or a felony, yeah. if you, you yeah. it, it has immediate impact on our ability to work. Whereas this position seems to be a completely different thing. Like a DUI is a perfect example. People should absolutely not drink and drive. And in the state of California, DUI charges against a licensed mental health clinician are swift. They are severe and they are immediate. So Mm -hmm. why wouldn't we have people holding our highest positions in the court of law to those same kind of standards?
1: I know they're, does exist a code of conduct for most judicial bodies, like the U.S. courts has their code of conduct for judges and states, et cetera. So that can go into detail, but still it's it's a code of conduct. The penalties and the ramifications and consequences just aren't really having any teeth, like you said. Mm. So in looking at some examples of particularly egregious behaviors perpetrated by judges, we found some Real doozies here. We're going to kind of take right. you all over the board. <laughs> they run the gamut from exceedingly criminal to reflections on their behavior behind the scenes. I,
0: I know. There's one particularly here I've been waiting to cover for a long time, but we're going to save it for the end. And I I okay. will try and keep a straight face telling the story because okay. it's... <laughs> okay. Anyway.
1: Sounds good. Looking forward to it. However, I'm going to start with a non-American judge for one of my examples, former Canadian Judge Jacques Delila, who sat on the Quebec Superior Court from 1985 to 1992, as well as the Quebec Court of Appeals from 1992 to 2009 when he retired. So Delila was arrested, charged, and subsequently convicted of murder in June 2010 for the November 2009 death of his wife, Marie-Nicole Rainville. Dalila, throughout the proceedings and subsequent imprisonment, always maintained his innocence, claiming that his wife of 49 years actually died by suicide because she had significant health problems, significant mobility issues, and her quality of life was not great. She had a stroke in 2007 that left her partially paralyzed with the necessary use of a wheelchair. And her last months were further complicated by a lengthy hospital stay after a significant hip fracture. I can't imagine how devastating that was with already her condition. But during the preparation for the trial and the proceedings, interestingly, it was revealed that Dalila was having an affair with his coworker, his former secretary, when his wife died of a gunshot wound to her head.
0: Dalila's trial was scheduled to begin in 2011, but it hit a delay when one of the prosecutors withdrew from the proceedings. That's always interesting. Now, it can be for any number of reasons that we aren't privy to, but that's always interesting. The trial finally began in May of 2012, and in June of 2012, the next month, Delila was found guilty of first-degree murder for the death of his wife, Marie Nicole. So Dalila and his representation proceeded immediately to appeal the conviction. However, the Quebec Court of Appeals upheld the standing decision and they declined to hear his case. Moving forward, in March of 2015, the courts announced that Justice Minister Peter McKay would consider Delila's request for a new trial. During those proceedings, the former judge asserted that his wife had committed suicide and that her attempt was completed with a weapon that he had supplied. Wait, what? <laughs> he, yeah. why, are you
1: giving, why are you giving your wife a
0: gun? Why are you giving your, you know, not maybe not terminally ill, but your wife who is severely impacted by mobile issues and health mm-hmm. issues, why are you providing her with a weapon? So this assertion is reported to have been supported by the forensic experts that were brought in for that appeal.
1: Right. So the the appeal focused on irregularities in the original autopsy report that was completed by the pathologist and the report that was used to convict Alila was found to have major shortcomings when evaluated by another pathologist. So the original pathologist his work was found to be described as grossly negligent because he failed to disclose and preserve evidence of significant bullet fragments in Rainville's skull. And these particular fragments would have fully established the trajectory of the bullet that entered Rainville's brain. Significant amounts of gunshot residue were found on Rainville's hand during the investigation, which further supported the claims that she fired the firearm herself. So... I don't know about
0: this one. Yeah. I and mean, it's to look at the picture of, that is, you know, you can see online, there's a photograph of her hand that was taken as evidence. And yeah. there is like this major gunshot residue smudge oh, wow. on her hand. Hmm. The other thing is is looking at the age of Dalila at the time. These were two elderly people. Yes. The idea, it's weird that he provided her with this weapon, but did she have the wherewithal to use it? But clearly, you know, the trial was not. Was not handled well at the beginning. It does well mean,
1: all, right. and all of our forensic files, listeners, right now are like, "Oh, he totally wiped her hand on." It.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you yeah, know. But he was wearing glasses. I mean, it's just you can all go down those rabbit holes so quickly. So, in April of 2021, Federal Justice Minister David Lametti ordered a new trial for Delila, where the sentence and the conviction were set aside and discharged. And in 2022, the Superior Court of Quebec made a final ruling that he would not face a second trial and he should be released. So Delila is the first judge in Canadian history to be charged with murder and the first to serve prison time. Delila was incarcerated for 10 years and he's currently 87 years old.
1: And free. And it's, free. It's, it's a free man. It's so meta when you think about these cases because it's like judges judging judges.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Especially in a yeah. case like this, that's like that weapon providing the weapon thing is pretty, it's pretty sketchy. But I,
1: I mean, I wonder if there was like an element to it at all of like, well, was this sort of like an assisted suicide?
0: That seems to be the way that it, the, the story. Storyline leans, but nobody's saying it in anything that I've read. Like in any of the research I was able to find, they weren't stating it explicitly.
1: Right. And we don't like it when, you know, wives end up dead and that there's an affair happening at the same
0: time. No, it's icky.
1: (laughs) Doesn't sit well with us. Okay. All right. Let's come, let's come back to the United States and talk about a man named Clarence Thomas. Hmm. So, He was a federal circuit judge and was nominated to the Supreme Court of the United States in 1991 by then-President George H.W. Bush. He has been a member of the Supreme Court of the United States since 91. Successful Senate hearings on his nomination and confirmation were finished with an almost glowing picture of Thomas's character, a significant qualification. This emphasis on his character was very important because he only had a year's experience as a judge. Everything was clear to go until an FBI interview of a woman named Anita Hill was leaked to the press, resulting in the hearings being reopened. And Miss Hill was brought in to testify.
0: So let's address something right now, very importantly here, by introducing the level of importance and the actual background of the players here. Anita Hill is an American attorney, author, educator, professor of social policy, law, and women's study at multiple universities. She became a Columbia Bar member in 1980 and became an attorney advisor to Clarence Thomas after several years as a law associate with a highly reputable firm. So just to go back and emphasize, in 1980, she became an attorney advisor to Clarence Thomas. The person that she is testifying about. Ms. Hill was admitted to the District of Columbia Bar in 1980, began her law career as an associate with the Washington, D.C. firm of Wald, Harcrater, and Ross. In 1981, When she became attorney advisor to Clarence Thomas, he was then the assistant secretary to the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. Anita Hill served as Thomas's assistant when he became chairman of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission.
1: So she was very impressive in 1991, and she's continued to excel as a leader and educator throughout the years since this debacle that brought her into Really the vicious eye of the public and today still smart and beautiful as ever at age 65. Agreed. Yeah. In her public deposition in October of 1991, Hill stated that she had experienced sexual harassment perpetrated by Thomas while he was her supervisor at the EEOC. She testified that Clarence Thomas had asked her out numerous times during her employment as his assistant, as well as many other things. But
0: so after want to tell us some more? Yeah. (laughs) It it just continues to build. After declining many of Thomas's advances over the months that she was there, she described his efforts to create work situations that would provide him with an opportunity to discuss sexual topics. Hill testified that Thomas spoke about bestiality and filmed scenes of groups' sex that he had observed and rape scenes in films that he had observed. Thomas repeatedly, graphically described his uh, purported sexual abilities, as well as describing his genitalia. She also described another particularly disturbing incident where Thomas looked at a soda can on his desk and asked, who has put pubic hair on my Coke?
1: This is so indicative of rejection, like male rejection and...
0: With, without a doubt. It is <laughs> it's like textbook. textbook.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Miss Hill was vilified and continues to be to this day with there's websites that assert that her testimony doesn't add up and people still pick this apart despite very strong evidence coming from the initial FBI interview that she had done. Republican Senator Orwin Hatch worked hard to imply that Ms. Hill was working collaboratively to destroy Thomas's chances at the Supreme Court when it should be noted that Ms. Hill cooperated throughout the process, even agreeing to take a polygraph test, which of course is not admissible in court but always insisted upon until the alleged individual actually asked for it and hello she's not the one on trial here so so to speak right like this isn't a trial but right she's not the person that's being raked over the coals she's a witness and being asked to take a polygraph
0: and being raked over the coals so here's the thing she does take the polygraph And it supported her assertions about Clarence Thomas's actions, that she was not being deceptive. So as the implications for these hearings continued to escalate, Thomas made more and more stringent statements, asserting that the actions were instigated by white liberals looking to unseat a conservative Supreme Court member. Despite the testimony and the troubling allegations, Thomas was confirmed to the Supreme Court by the narrowest margin since the 19th century, consisting of a vote of 52 to 48. So clearly, and that was, remember the folks, that was a time when there was a lot more reaching across the aisle than there is now. There's like, there's so much division now, but back then, I mean, that's really significant. And here here we are all these years later.
1: Also, it's like, Perfect example of Darvo. Deny, attack, and then reverse victim and offender. It's just like classic defense of somebody who's victimized somebody this way. Anita Hill was accused of being either a pawn, a revenge-prompted, jilted stalker, mentally ill. Of course, we always like to go to that, right? A delusional vamp. I mean... All of these things that she has been called. And while she did follow Thomas to another job after these allegations, people forget the real challenges that women's career trajectories have faced historically, especially we're talking about the 80s and 90s. And uh, here we go again. It's the same pathway of questioning of, well, why didn't she leave? Why didn't she say something? You know, we're starting to victim blame like we see in IPV situations. It's kind of gross as we talk about this over
0: again. It's (laughs) Gross, and it's frustrating because Mm -hmm. it's just this ongoing repetition of history that gets more complicated the more we supposedly think that we are up on it. Yeah. Look, what's so frustrating for me here is the lack of perspective as to the reality of what women have faced historically in any career. They have to put up with so much shit, work twice as hard to get half as far. And then, and here's where I'll sound like a, a boomer, is that current generations really want to hold their predecessors to what seems to me to be impossible standards. Yeah. So you're there are a lot of people today that will still go, well, she could have left, How how could she possibly how could this possibly have happened? And yet she followed him because she's just she's talking about the shit that she put up with. Right. right. That's what we're losing. She's talking about the shit that she put up with that is a reflection on his character, on his quote-unquote integrity, right?
1: Yeah, and it, it's not like she was the only woman putting up with this shit. <laughs> like, right. there's millions of stories, I'm sure, like this that's just like, oh, yeah, like, that's that's what we did. That That is what we put up with. And hopefully not the same degree in such big numbers, but every woman's generation in the workplace has their version. So in a fascinating development, author David Brock recanted the allegations he had made about Miss Hill in the book, The Real Anita Hill in 1993, describing his work as an actual character assassination. He's noted to have apologized to Miss Hill many years later.
0: Oh, well, good for you. For what that was ever worth. Yeah, I mean, I I, I do know that... (laughs) You know, I I don't think David would be listening to this, but I do know that he has made great efforts to remove himself from the position he took in the 90s doing a lot of character assassination. And she, okay. was, she was not the only target. There were a lot of targets. And apparently he had an epiphany and realized what he was doing and had like a maybe a moral or ethical crisis. You know, I don't know how you sit with yourself when you realize that you played a part in absolutely diverting the path of justice. I I, I wouldn't, I got to tell you, I fucking wouldn't want to be in that position. I would not, I wouldn't know how I would, how I would deal with that. I really don't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you certainly can't, certainly can't undo what, you know, what has happened, but I yeah. guess copying to it and apologizing for it is it's a, step. a start. Yeah. So Thomas in 2007 wrote an autobiography and he claimed a conspiracy of pro-choice liberals who were motivated by their fear that he would vote to overturn Roe versus Wade when talking about all of this Anita Hill stuff. So yeah, Uh, you know things were in motion how telling huh
0: well going back isn't that interesting we talked about one of the qualities when we're talking about temperament one of the big red flags is rumination on perceived grievances so here we go we've got somebody with an ideology for whatever reason and believe me i will sit down with somebody that is that is anti-choice and we can have a discussion if you're willing to have a discussion but you know Be prepared to have receipts and not about your belief system, but about actual Mm -hmm. observable fact. But in this case, it's just almost chilling that he's been sitting on this ruminating since probably 2005 when he started writing it. It's very telling to me. Look, Thomas, while initially describing Miss Hill's work as excellent, which was exactly the way it was described when she was working for him. Now he describes her work as mediocre at best. And he describes her character as... What I want to say, like family feud, like the top. This is what we always go after women for for being emotional, fragile, sensitive, and likely to be dramatic and overreactive. This is fascinating, giving her amazing self-composure and her presentation and her ongoing significant accomplishments since the early nineties. It says a lot
1: of raging.
0: Yeah. It says a lot about him. You know, if he thought so poorly of her, why did he write these support letters? Thomas went on to describe Hill's peers at the time that supported her as all employees who had left him on bad terms. There you go. So again, like this paranoid ideation that it's all a conspiracy against him. Like, and look, there were four female witnesses who were vetted to support Anita Hill's case they were not called due to what the LA Times newspaper discovered was a deal between Republicans and the Senate Judiciary Committee chaired by Joseph Biden.
1: Oh, geez. Yeah. We're going all the way to the top today, I'm Scott.
0: telling you, and we're all over it. Just like, it just shows how, how complex politics are.
1: Shows how old Joe Biden is.
0: Yeah, yeah really. I can't
1: wait till the mail that we get on this episode to oh, stay in our lane again.
0: I know. Oh, yeah. That'll be like another two-star review for one episode that you don't agree with. But, stay hey.
1: in your lane. It Don't talk about the law. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So as Biden was preparing to run for president, though, he reached out to express regret to Miss Hill. And she's reported to have replied, quote, I cannot be satisfied by simply saying, I'm sorry for what happened to you. I will be satisfied when I know that there is real change and real accountability and real purpose. Mm. So Miss Hill is known to this day to be a very private person, has declined over the years to revisit this. Really challenging experience. Despite this, she has stated that Biden's conduct at the time does not disqualify his qualifications for his presidency, stating, I'm really open to people changing, professional and classy as well, I'd say. And last year, she published a book. It's called Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence.
0: So I just want to give another... Now, she's not a judge. Sounds like she would make an excellent, excellent judge. Yeah. But when we talk about temperament, and the absolute opposite of the negative aspects of rumination and paranoia and perceived grievances, this is somebody who says, I'm really open to people changing.
1: Yep. Love it.
0: Love it. Yes. But gross also, not her, but just what she went through. But we're moving on to something gross, which is horrific in its Mm -hmm. scope. Luzerne County Judge Mark Chiaforella, also known as Kids for Cash Judge Chiaforella, received a 28-year prison sentence for his role in the Kids for Cash scandal. This is a big one. This is a yep. real big one. So he was sentenced in 2011 to 28 years, stemming from his acceptance of over $2.8 million in backroom deals and kickbacks related to filling privately developed juvenile detention facilities. He engaged in these practices with Judge Michael Conahan, as well as the developer and builder of the facilities.
1: The judge presiding over his case also ordered a hefty restitution to be paid in the amount of 965 dollars essentially to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania for his judicial salary, and over $200,000 in the restitution related to the tax charges. So the entire investigation started when agents of the IRS looked into Chia Varela and his co-defendant, conahan for relatively i mean i guess relatively minor tax issues <laughs> mail and wire fraud and some tax fraud Yeah,
0: just minor stuff i mean right. You're a judge, things, this is just minor stuff
1: the way that, the way this turns out i mean it is a, the more minor of their flaws but so they ended up start getting charged in january of 2009 for these offenses by the irs but there's a lot more that came out
0: yeah because as the case developed the full extent of their actions were revealed. The investigation and inquiry that started in 2007, it revealed financial dealings and abuses that included county government offices, state legislators, school districts, and contractors in Pennsylvania. Both judges agreed to plead guilty, but in July 2009, the presiding judge, Judge Kosick, rejected the defense's proposed plea agreements because neither of the judges appeared to accept personal responsibility for their conduct. So, I, All, love that. I love Judge Kozik for doing that. <laughs> Me
1: too. That's integrity right, right there. And they haven't
0: <laughs> even gotten to the bad stuff yet.
1: Right. In the 2009 follow-up proceeding, both judges were charged with racketeering, honest services mail fraud, money laundering, extortion, bribery, tax violations, conspiracy, as well as forfeiture of approximately $2.8 million in assets. And after an 11-day jury trial... Chia Varela forfeited the almost a million dollars received from Robert Miracle. Miracle is the individual who developed and built the juvenile detention facilities.
0: So the evidence established that Conahan closed the existing Luzerne County juvenile detention facility when he was chief judge. Then he arranged for the financing for the private facilities developed and built by Miracle. It was further established that Chia Varela then sent juveniles to those facilities, and that both men buried the efforts to question the county's use of the private facilities, as well as their financial relationships with Miracle and Powell. So in case you're not getting it, folks, they tore down the existing structures, and maybe the existing structures needed to be torn down. But what they did was they created a private, or even if it was the new county facility, it was larger, and they needed to fill those beds. So the judges were like handing out sentences right and left that were completely inappropriate for minors to be incarcerated.
1: Yeah, to justify this big wazoo new structure that they were in cahoots with the developer on. So literally kids for cash. The judicial and federal scandal had major consequences, although Chia Varela and Conahan resigned from the bench in 2009. The devastation they both brought is widespread and significant. The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania had to vacate thousands of juvenile convictions. So we're talking kids convicted that probably should not have been just to fill beds.
0: Well, and then some that maybe should have been, but when you've got them all mixed together, then you have, you know, of course, it's awful when innocent kids are convicted. And it's awful when, you know, guilty Parties are not held responsible for their actions, yeah. but this really, really screwed it up for them. Luzerne County did work with a state interbranch commission on juvenile justice and established a study on what happened and how to recommend changes in the state's justice system.
1: Changes that were clearly needed to protect the constitutional rights of juveniles, as well as improve the oversight and disciplinary process for judges in Pennsylvania. It really shook everything in Pennsylvania. It's just, it's pretty horrific. And in in June of 2011, plans were put in place to ensure the compensation to victims for the abuse that they experienced for false imprisonment due to the activities of these two judges. Mm. So there's at least there's some compensation that's happening there. Yeah, uh,
0: hopefully a shift in the right direction. I hope so. Okay, Okay. so Dr. Shiloh, as LA Not So Confidential is the premier forensic psychology and true crime podcast. We are able many times in our episodes to offer particularly nuanced examples of the darker side of humanity right sure okay unfortunately this is not one of those (laughs) great this is an example of something that is so unbelievable to me to this day that like i'm gonna try and control my giggling oh boy because and some of it will not be out of humor some of it will will be out of discomfort i promise you
1: Same. I I laugh when I'm extremely
0: uncomfortable with things. (laughs) Yeah, funeral giggles, they're called. So in 2006, Judge Donald D. Thompson, an honored veteran of 23 years on the judicial bench in Oklahoma, went on trial on charges that he used a penis pump. Yes, let's pause. Again, a penis pump on himself, under his robes, while conducting court. Oh. Sitting, sitting in judgment of others for years. No, not just one episode, for oh years. So let that and sink in <laughs> before we go any further. A penis pump on himself under his robes while conducting court.
1: No, no. Like
0: clearly, no. But uh, clearly. Unfortunately, it happened and it gets work. Let's, you know, <sighs> basically on an ongoing basis and with increasing regularity. Jurors, attorneys, clerks, basically everybody that was in the courtroom oh god kept hearing a whooshing noise that was described as being similar to a blood pressure cuff or a bicycle pump.
1: Oh, my God.
0: I know. So, look, the allegations came to light after a police officer who was in the court heard these bizarre sounds like pumping and releasing of air bellows. And the officer then identified a device in the judge's area and took photos of it during a break in proceedings.
1: That's exactly what a cop would do too. Exactly. Like, oh, I found the evidence. I'm going to take a picture what? of this shit.
0: And, you know, it was actually important that he did do it because this probably would have gotten much worse because this person clearly has some behavioral drift for whatever reason they're doing it. And it's just escalating.
1: Oh my God. This is like inappropriate sexual behavior
0: all yeah. over the place. Okay. So Dr. Shiloh, for God. our listeners, what what is a penis pop? So <laughs> I'm like, let's talk about that's that. That's a great
1: question. It is a I've great question seen on Bling Empire. When I watch uh, reality television,
0: okay. So Sorry. it's a pneumatic device. And it is legitimately used for erectile dysfunction. And it consists of a plastic cylinder and a modified type of pump that is similar to a bike pump that engorges the male member by the use of a vacuum. And honestly, it's also used recreationally to temporarily increase the size of one's member if that individual so desires. (laughs) You have to be very careful, according to urologists, because... It is a skill to learn to know how much you can tolerate without severely bruising your dick.
1: <laughs> so how many, how many, um, how many pumps, pumps you and can for give
0: how long? It. Right. So, dear listeners, if you're at work, please do not Google penis pump. Just don't even say it out loud so that Siri or Alexa will be bombarding <laughs> your news feed and Amazon shopping list, because that will happen.
1: Oh, great. Everyone's Siri's and
0: Alexa's just went off. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh,
1: my god, okay, no. my my mind's turning. I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. So during
0: one proceeding, Thompson appeared so distracted that some people thought he was, <laughs> he was engaged in a handheld video game below his oh, sight line. He was. He was. <laughs> it wasn't a video, it wasn't a Twitch, but it was closed. My God. Yeah. So someone also, because it is in Oklahoma. Someone (laughs) thought that he might be tying fly fishing lures. (laughs) Is that
1: what they call it now?
0: Yeah, is that what they're calling? Is that what the kids are calling it these days? Because, of course, that's what one would do when adjudicating a court proceeding. Oh God! So, I mean, what made this trial really giggle inducing was watching the defense attorney and the prosecutor. Pantomime masturbation <laughs> motions over and over again. And of course, the actual use of the device demonstrated in the courtroom to illustrate the. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, Why did he not just plead guilty? Oh I don't my know. god, he oh
0: went my... to trial. Well, I, I it just it's it. boggling. He was eventually charged with four counts of indecent exposure, each of them punishable up to 10 years in prison. And if convicted of the charges, he would have also had to register as a sex offender with the possibility yeah. of ending his seven thousand four hundred and eighty-nine dollar a month pension. That's a Whoa. lot of money in yeah. that state. That is a yes, lot of money. Is. Although Thompson to oh. the stand in his own defense. Of course. He asserted he did. that the device was just a gag gift from a friend. I, I think those assertions were pretty flaccid to myself. Stop it.
1: <laughs> I can't with you today.
0: He kept stating that he did not use the pump under the bench or in his office. He just did not use it. He squares that no. he didn't. His He's testimony. Just there for looks. Get it? Testimony, test testimony.
1: Testies, testies. <laughs> Is this mic on? Testies.
0: <laughs> his testimony was provided by a number of witnesses, including his former court reporter, Miss Lisa Foster, and she described, really, in a tearful and distraught manner during her narrative, as being able to finally trace that strange shh-shh sound in the courtroom to Thompson. And she testified between 2001 and 2003, she saw the judge exposed himself at least 15 <gasps> times.
1: Wow. Yeah. Poor Lisa. So look, oh
0: in goodness. all seriousness, she gave an absolute bizarre account of hearing the sound during a trial in 2002 when she heard the pump during the emotionally devastating testimony of a man sharing his grief over the murder of his grandson.
1: Oh, fuck this guy. I know. Oh.
0: So Foster stated that the first time she could identify the sound activity was in 2000, but she was afraid to make any kind of report to authorities. And here's her quote. I didn't want to be found dead in a ditch somewhere. So this is important about the fear. I mean, all humor wow. aside, that speaks to the level of fear in that particular court going yeah. back to the qualities that, you know, are supposed to be held by these judges.
1: Yeah, not just that, like, he's a quirky weirdo, but like, this that right. it, it speaks more to maybe the system. Yeah.
0: So mm. here's another quote from a witness. It sounded like a penis pump to me. He hastily then corrected himself, saying that he had seen such devices in movies such as Austin Powers and Dead Man on Campus. <laughs> Certainly never one in person. He just he just uh, had heard them in movies. And it's reported that the pumping only occurred occasionally around 2001, but it became more and more common and way more indiscreet because no one challenged him on it and no one turned him in. Yeah. So as a result of the trial, Thompson was disbarred after being convicted on four counts of indecent exposure. And he was sentenced in August 2006 to four years in prison. And guess how many months he served?
1: Mm, I don't know. Not four years, though. Yeah,
0: 20. Oh, geez. I mean, that's the part where it's really, I mean, all humor aside, like this is so, I don't really use the word disgusting very much because I just don't. But like, this is disgusting. Like this is, it's the, the, idea that he's exposing himself to people is something that mm-hmm. you and I have witnessed in our work with sex offenders. This guy's a pervert. <laughs> I mean, he really is. Well, he's
1: he's a pervert, but it's such an ultimate power play. Oh, like, God, yeah. To get to the point where you think that you can be in this very high-profile position where literally, you're raised above the other people in the room yeah. and you can do this and people aren't going to say anything. And then to just absolutely disrespect and disgrace the court by, even if it's just touching yourself or using the penis pump or masturbation or whatever, the disgrace that that shows, even if nobody knew about it, right? right? Like It's, you a, know, for it's years, a power move knew. and it's
0: an ultimate fuck you. It is. I get to do what just... I want to do. Oof, well, thankfully, man. he was suspended from law practice and he was sanctioned by the state of Oklahoma and he was sanctioned because he brought discredit on the judiciary and legal profession. And here's a quote. Furthermore, his conduct displayed a complete abdication of judgment. His criminal behavior is not only socially unacceptable, but is an affront to the judicial branch of government and the legal profession. I love that quote. And I think that that should be at the front of what's going on today in proceedings without judges are chosen. He did have his pension cut off despite two appeals. And newspapers seem to be having a pretty good time with creating headlines and bylines for the case. So there's always like a lot of double entendre On puns being used. A former, here's one, a former Oklahoma judge who served time in prison for using a penis pump while he presided over trials will have his hefty pension yanked for good. (laughs) (laughs) His hefty pension yanked. And uh, so the other reporters started to have a good time with it. Another court reporter, Jan Doolin, testified that she had cleaned out Thompson's office following his retirement, quote unquote. And then she finally admitted to confiscating and trashing bottles of hand lotion, as well as prescription wow. bottles of Viagra and Cialis. And... You know, for
1: people who are exhibitionists, it, there's definitely this... You know, it's it's not always just like running up to somebody with a trench coat on and like shocking them. It's sort of these like covert, how can I get away with some of these behaviors that maybe no one will ever know about. But it sounds like that just completely escalated for him.
0: Yeah, it's that behavioral drift. So maybe like what you're saying is maybe his initial intention, whether conscious or unconscious, was to be somewhat overt in his actions, but to the extent where he would have plausible deniability of Correct. like oh no, I didn't mean to do that oh no, I'm so sorry like I didn't oh right. I, how could I possibly expose myself to you but yeah. since he's in this high position, nobody ever challenged him on it right And so he just takes this hard, hard right. In behavioral drift, clear. Oh, I de- Now I did it. Hard, hard <laughs> ride. That
1: a, yeah, mm. that was it.
0: <laughs> but I also feel badly for you know. I feel badly for everybody involved, including the women who were basically victimized by this. They yes. were exposed, and then this court reporter feeling that she had to go and clean up this Ugh. disgusting stuff. God, no, they, thank you. Can you imagine if they used like one of those UV lights to? Exposed like Good all that, God. that bench would have been disgusting. Thompson will not receive his pension, but he will get retirement benefits from his stint as a state legislature that he held from 1974 to 1980.
1: Yeah, six so, years of benefits that won't be much. Not, okay,
0: not much. He'll 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 be suffering if he lives that long. But what I would want to wrap up with in these particular examples is that this ties back to the kids for cash scandal because this legitimately led to a wave of appeals from defendants who could now claim that Thompson was not paying attention to them well, while presiding yeah. over their cases.
1: Yeah, he had other things on his mind
0: and in oh, his goodness.
1: hand and in <laughs> his hand. There we go. We have just sunk to a new low on LA. Not so confidential.
0: It's all in. It's it, it, it's all in the service getting the truth of out there, right? uh, getting the truth out. People need to know.
1: <laughs> well, I, I think that's a really honestly like. Obviously, I perk up and when I hear about this because it has to do with deviant sexual behavior. Stop yourself right now. <laughs> yes, I'm a weirdo interested in that sort but that of
0: thing. Is, that's a good point that this is definitely what would be considered deviant sexual behavior. And can you 100%. just wrapping up, tell us why that is deviant?
1: Well, it's deviant and I know like normal is not well defined, but when we look at rates of types of sexual behavior that people engage in, there are the, the rarest of the rare are ones that have to do with violence and ones that have to do with prepubescent children. But there's that also that category where if you're doing anything that does not involve consent with someone else. be it exposing yourself to them or, you know, full-on sexual activity, but that is absolutely deviant because you don't have consent to expose yourself to someone. So this is really interesting because he, like you were saying, he follows that line of what we call passive exhibitionists where they might put themselves in a position where it can be easily explained away why they were perhaps nude or naked or caught in that state like you know getting a massage and then being nude underneath the towel but then letting the towel slip off right some some exhibitionists who are more passive would set up situations like that but yeah i think you know this probably started with him he has a bench covering his lap and he has a robe covering his lap and he thought oh i can do some stuff back here and kind of wield this internal sexual power and no one will know. And then it I'm sure it just escalated to using a penis pump that makes a sound that people are going to hear, but not challenge him on as well as just sounds like full on exposure as well.
0: Yeah. Well Woo. a long episode folks, our one of our OG types of episodes (laughs) I do want to encourage people you know all joking aside that there are probably some themes here that are challenging to people and I Mm -hmm. you know we're always going to respect that and hope that you understand that we are struggling with some of these issues too you know that it is a dialectic it is holding opposites and looking at the big picture and challenging ourselves to see things in a big three-dimensional paradigm or four-dimensional even so Mm -hmm. um bear with us as you know the vast majority of our listeners do which we greatly greatly appreciate
1: yes and it is this episode drops on the 20th and on the 23rd we will have another live stream we'll be talking to dr joni johnston about psychological autopsy so please join Oof, us that's for that be I'm so great. Get Vocal. yes yes all right well man july is almost done it's, it's like basically almost halloween and christmas i know so
0: the, the most two most important times of the year as, as far yes. as i'm concerned
1: yeah All right. Well, everyone, we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Take care. Bye-bye. sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crossbase Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Esri of Ear Cult Productions.
0: The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please Check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube.
1: All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at la-not-so-podcast, on Twitter at la-not-so-pod, and on Facebook at la-not-so-confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com.
0: Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements
1: subscribe to la not so confidential wherever you get your audio so you never miss a new episode lastly we'd be honored if you joined our patreon at patreon.com slash la not so podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events social gatherings and super cool swag coming your way
0: thanks for listening and join us next time on la not so confidential